Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Shackman. I think if there's one overriding meme in our world today, it's about fear. Fear of change, fear of a shrinking world, fear of the impact of technology. In short, fear of an unknown future. Regardless of that fear, the future is inevitable. It's the place we're all going, the place we're going to be living. So even for those that are afraid to embrace it, we should at least understand it. And few see that future more clearly than my guest, Kevin Kelly. Kevin is truly one of our visionary thinkers. He co-founded Wired Magazine and served for years as its executive editor. He is editor and publisher of the Cool Tools website, co-founded the Hackers Conference. He's the author of What Technology Wants, New Rules for the New Economy, and Out of Control. It is my pleasure to welcome Kevin Kelly here to talk about the future and about his latest work, The Inevitable, Understanding the 12 Technological Forces that Will Shape Our Future. Kevin Kelly, welcome back to the program. Oh, it's a real delight to be here. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. As we think about some of these 12 areas that you talk about for the future, is it technology that has baked within it the things that are driving this forward, or are these decisions human beings are making about what they need and what they want? Steve Jobs used to say that people generally don't know what they want until it's put in front of them. Which are the forces that are most powerfully driving this change? Yeah, I, mean, I think you're right. There's a little bit of both where there are very physics and chemistry, say, of technology biases in certain directions. And those are the kind of large forces that I'm trying to enumerate in my book. But there's also ways in which we have choices about the specific particulars, how we can cast something in our version of it. So the Internet was inevitable, but what kind of Internet was not? And we have a lot of choice in deciding whether it's international or, or, or cosmopolitan or whether it's for-profit or a non-profit, whether it's open or closed. Those are kinds of things we, ha- we can decide and we are going to decide. So I'm talking about trends like uh, the coming of cognification, of making things smarter, or of artificial intelligence. That's coming. We don't have much choice in that, but we do have a choice about what kind of AIs we want to make. There does seem to be a disconnect, though, between the speed at which all of this change is happening, the speed at which this technology is moving forward, and our innate ability, given the institutions we have and given our own predilections as a society, to to making those decisions. By the time we begin to decide what it is that we want in those regards, the technology seems to have moved on. Yeah, you're right. It's, it, it, we become more and more difficult for us to master anything because by the time we think we've mastered it, it it's morphed into something different. And so I think the meta skill, so to speak, that we are going to have to learn is this meta skill of being the internal newbie, of being the lifelong learner, of being able to unlearn what we have and relearn at an increasing speed because everything is being upgraded and there's a new version. And once we have mastered this one interface, there's another one. So it is a bit exhausting, but I believe that technology can also help us invent new ways for us to deal with that. So, so, so my position is that generally technology produces almost as many problems as, as it creates solutions, but the solutions to the problems is more technology, not less technology. Mm-hmm. 
each iteration of this technology, each time we leap forward with some of these things, are there people that are left behind? And what does that mean in the broader scheme of things, do you think? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Because it's very clear that as we're making these cars now that can drive themselves, these AI-driven cars that Google has made and has been running a million miles on the road, they already exist. And so there's more of them coming. And there will certainly be truck drivers who are going to lose their current job of driving these trucks. And so they, in a sense, will have their livelihood threatened. But what we don't appreciate is the degree to which these technologies also create new opportunities, new jobs for us. You know, 100, 150 years ago, 70% of the Americans were farmers. And um, now there's only 1%. So all those jobs are gone. And if we get in a time machine and go back to 150 years ago and have a little stack of pink slips for all the farmers and say, hey, your job's going to be gone, they would ask us what they could possibly do. And we said, you'd be, well, you're going to be web designers and you're, you're, you're going to um, uh, be mortgage brokers and you're going to be uh, yoga teachers and stuff. And so that, that would not have really computed because these things are all future desires, future abilities that we didn't even know we had and we turned them into occupations. And I think even while there will be a lot of friction and difficulty for those truck drivers who are losing their jobs, we also will be making at the same time entirely new things that people who have some skill about the roads will, will be able to, to do. And there'll be jobs from repairing the trucks to devising new routes or new ways in which the trucks can drive by themselves. There's, there's a lots of opportunities that's made by each one of these new technologies. I guess the difference is as we move from an agrarian to an industrial society and now moving into a, a much greater technological society is the change is happening so much faster at each stage. Yeah, I, I, I agree that that, that is. It, it is uh, the speed at which we're required to change to change jobs even to change careers can be exhausting and Alvin Toffler actually um, uh, I don't know at this point 40 years ago invented the term uh, future shock that, right. that there was a sense of this kind of shock at the this pace of change and I think we still are suffering from some of that and but I, I, I do think that technology actually allows g gives us ways to try to deal with this speed, that it is something we have to learn how to do, maybe even have to be educated how to do. I don't think it's going to be easy, but I think the benefits from it are such that most people will trade the new thing for the old thing because they get an additional benefit. It remains to be seen whether we can accelerate that a million times faster. Uh, it's hard to imagine how that would work where, you know, you wake up tomorrow and you really have a whole new world if, if everything goes the same speed that we have. Um, but I think we're a kind of addicted a little bit to the new. And um, I, I, I don't see any reason why we won't be able to learn, even though it seems impossible, but... I guess the one thing I've learned is to believe in the impossible more often. Right. One of the ways that that happens, as you talk about it, is this, this idea of personalization, that things will be made 
easier for us, I suppose, by the degree to which they are personalized. But of course, that goes along with what you talk about in terms of tracking and, and what some would refer to as surveillance. Yeah, yeah. So there, there, there's, there does seem to be some kind of coupling, I guess I would call it, between this axis, this, this, this variable where we can have, we can remain kind of hidden to people or we can be a little bit more visible and transparent. So that transparency axis, 100% transparency and 100% obscurity. And then there's another axis, which is this personalization. So we can have things personalized for us. We can, we can, we can have everything really tailored to our particular mix of talents and personality, or we can be a generic figure, a, a cog, a, a number in the machine. And um, it turns out that, that if you want to have absolute personalization, if you really want everything in your life to be really tailored to you, then you have to kind of in some ways be, reveal yourself to your friends or to uh, your surroundings or your company or companies. You have to be transparent to them. So absolute customization and personalization requires absolute transparency. At the other end, absolute obscurity requires absolute generic treatment. And so you can't have one without the other. So if you, if you want to be treated as a unique individual, then you have to be transparent. You have to move that slider in the transparent direction. And the big surprise that has occurred in the last 10, seven to 10 years is that when we give that choice to people and we should give the choice, in general, people are pushing that slider over to that customization, maximum customization, maximum transparency side in Facebook and places like that. And so they're choosing to, to be transparent because they want to be customized and personable. And I kind of flippantly reduce that to this little quote, which is that basically vanity is trumping privacy. And that's where we are. And that's really as much a generational thing as it is anything else, that younger people seem much more comfortable with that. It is a generational thing, but I... And, and, and it could also just be an age thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, you know, the, the youth in general forever has, have, have been obsessed, but they often um, leave some of those obsessions behind as they age. And so it's possible that... It is a phase that adults, I mean, that, that humans would go through and that while they're young, they may be very, very eager to have that vanity trump their privacy. And as they get older, they may shift. So we don't know yet. I mean, social media is less than 2,000 days old. <laughs> I mean, we're just at the beginning of the beginning. We have a lot to figure out about this. This, this may take another generation to actually figure out what we want this social consensus to be. Um, we, we forget about how young all this stuff is. One of the things that you talk about in, in terms of the way that it's all changing is that we're moving from a time of, of just information, which is what we talk so much about today, to one that is more functioning around experience. Talk a little about that, Kevin. Yeah. So um, one of the increasing trends is we have this uh, movement towards more and more interaction with the things we make, more and more ways in which we can um, communicate, not just with 
typing and using our tips of our fingers to type on a keyboard, but actually using our voice, actually using our gestures, actually using our whole body movements. And this best kind of visualized in something called virtual reality, where you put on a pair of goggles and you are transported to another place. And uh, you may also have a vest or gloves that are capturing your movements so that you have a avatar, you have a virtual being in that place that other people in the place can see. And you can see their avatars, even though they may be in remote corners of the world, you're gathered together in this virtual world. And so that, that sense in which um, we can share these worlds and, and, and interact with each other is um, the, the new thing that's happening. And the difference is, that the, the, nobody kind of really expected this, but when you're in that kind of a world, you actually feel as if you are present in that world, as if you're immersed. And if you see something there, that, that thing has a real presence. And even if it's kind of a cartoony thing, it feels as if it's really there. And that feeling is sort of operating in a different part of your brain than the part that knows about things. And so we, on, on the internet, we can kind of FaceTime or Skype someone and we can see them and we kind of know that they're there, but that knowing is, is happening in the kind of the front of our brain. What I'm talking about, what we get with these virtual worlds is it's a different kind of feeling. And, and the best example of that is, is a test that the VR people do is, is you're standing in a room uh, and, and then all of a sudden half the floor falls away and drops like a mile down and you're suddenly on the edge of a cliff. And your brain, your, your logical, rational brain knows that you're just still in the room. But the other part of your brain, the more primitive part, I guess, thinks and feels as if you're on the edge and you're about to die. And it forces you back because, and, and even though your logical says, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I don't need to move, your feeling overcomes it. It's much stronger. And that is happening in VR, it plays kind of tricks, I would guess to say, on your perception and others to, to convince you that these things are real, these presences are real. And what it does is it's kind of like a, it's an emotional empathy machine. It can amplify these feelings of being present, of being witnessing something, of experiencing something. And so there's a sense in which this is a new currency that, that we'll get to when we have these technologies that give us these these, these experiences where the currency is now experience and emotion and empathy. And that's very different than kind of knowledge and, and seeing images and seeing knowledge and seeing is really different to feeling and experiencing. And so the new plat platform that we're creating that's going to be the next after the smartphone is going to be this VR thing where we have an internet of experiences which is really very powerful and is going to be a source of great opportunity and wealth for many people. The broader overlay to that is then it calls into question and redefines, I suppose, what's real and what isn't, and to what extent our perceptions are about the truth or not about the truth. Absolutely. And by the way, this is the science fiction author's Philip K. Dick's entire corpus. Every movie right. he made from you know, Blade Runner to Minority Report to Total Recall is all about this issue of like being, <laughs> finding it difficult to tell between what's real and what's not real. I think my own experience in um, 
VR is is that um, our human minds, for some reason, are very well attuned to trying to ferret out this, whether whether things are really real or not, and that um, I, I think is we're a long time before you could really fool somebody if they really wanted to know. I mean, in a certain sense, oftentimes we go and we don't really care. We want to believe. Like, we go to a movie and we kind of surrender ourselves and we kind of don't want, you know, we don't, we don't look at all the little holes and logical plots and things that are missing because we actually kind of want to believe for that duration. Right. And so there is a kind of a willing suspension of belief that I think operates. If you really question yourself, you went home and thought about it afterwards, you say, yeah, that's, there's all kinds of reasons why that doesn't work and it's not real, I think for the most part, we will be able to tell if we need to tell, but for oftentimes, we, it doesn't matter, and so we will enjoy that presence. You know, there's a telepresence. Somebody's, somebody's sitting next to us, and we're working with them, and they're, they're kind of a virtual avatar, and we'll have a relationship. And while we're doing it, it'll seem as if they're really there, and for most of the purposes that we want, will behave as if they are really there and we'll get all that benefit. We don't have to travel. They don't have to travel. But we don't really, if, if we're pressed, we'll say, yeah, they're not really there. But for most of the time, it's good enough. And I, and I think for most of the time, we, we will know enough to make those kinds of uh, assessments. At the end of the book, you talk about human nature and how that will adapt or not adapt to these cha- these inevitable change in technology. Talk a little about that. So, I think we're you know we're in this we're destined to be perpetual newbies, perpetually having to learn new things. To learn once we've mastered some interface, there's going to be another one a year later, two years later. There'll be a new device. There'll be new language for programming, that, that there'll be a constant upgrade and um, the new versions. And so there is a sense in which there'll be this relentless task of um, learning and relearning and unlearning. And I think um, it may be exhaustive at times, but I do, I do think that that's um, where we're headed to. And it's a meta skill that I think what I call part of techno literacy that we just have to learn and maybe even be taught to learn, meaning sense deliberately trained to in the way that we spent four years learning how to read and write. It was not something we just absorbed by osmosis. We were taught that. And there may be that some of the skills of being a newbie and lifelong learning really and critical thinking really need to be um, a major part of our childhood training, and and um, to to make us more you know comfortable with that, um, not not as frightened by it, because I, I do think fear is I do think fear is, is is real and and at work in the world, and there's a pessimism about the future that isn't really um, correlated to the actual facts that the that the world is actually on average. A better place to live than it was a year ago, 20 years ago, 200 years ago. Those are that's the evidence, but it doesn't feel that way to a lot of people. Kevin Kelly, his book is The Inevitable: Understanding the Twelve Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. Kevin, I thank you so much for spending time with us. 
it was really great. And you know, the other place we're moving to is we're moving to the world where questions are more valuable than answers. If you want an answer, you ask a machine. Good questions are going to be something that humans will be valued for. And I thought your questions were some of the best questions I've had. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Kevin. I appreciate it. The book, The Inevitable, Kevin Kelly, thanks a lot.